0: He'll turn with me first to Isaiah's prophecy, chapter seven. I'm going to be reading verses one through nine. This is a prophecy that uh, relates. It's quite relevant to the text that we're dealing with tonight in second Kings. Isaiah seven, beginning of verse one. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported that the house of David, uh, rather to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook. As the trees of the forest shake with wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, She'er Yashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm, have no fear. You do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands, on the account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram, with Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Resin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not be established. Second Kings 16, verses 1 through 9 is our text. 2 Kings chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and even made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Judah to wage war, and they besieged Ahaz, but they could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered. Elath for Aram and cleared the Judeans out of Elath entirely and the Arameans came to Elath that and have lived there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-pileser, king of Assyria, saying, "I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram." and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away into exile to Kerr and put resin to death reading of God's holy word, be seated, and let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, we pray for wisdom now as we consider your word. We pray for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would impart the Spirit to us and grant us Eyes to see what you've revealed in your word to your people. Grant, O oh God, that uh, this passage would be uh, would profit our souls through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 As we considered Second Kings fifteen last week, we noted that the writer didn't seem to be very interested in the southern kingdom of Judah. The center section of chapter 8, or rather, uh, in verses 8 through 31, dealing with the, the rapid succession of five kings in Israel is bracketed by short accounts of Judah's kings, seven verses each, Azariah, also called Uzziah in verses 1 to 7, Jotham in verses 32 to 38, consisting almost exclusively of the standard formulas that are used to introduce the kings of Israel. That center section shows the northern kingdom of Israel plunging into chaos, while the southern kingdom of Judah remains in relatively good shape. No, the high places were not removed, but Azariah and Jotham are said to do right in the sight of the Lord in their religious policies, and their successive reigns provided a 68-year period of stability for the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah. In chapter 16, the writer is really interested in Judah. The whole chapter is devoted to a southern king, Ahaz, which is uncharacteristic in First and Second Kings so far. In the back of both of these chapters, the international scene is darkening under the growing power of Assyria. Uh, under its able king, Tiglath-Pileser. And Israel will soon fall to Assyria, and Judah is teetering on the brink of the same fate. But the first threat to Ahaz comes not from Assyria, rather it comes from a coalition between Israel and Aram, There's an account, uh, we we read from the account uh, of of this episode in uh, Isaiah 7, where the prophet urges the king not to be afraid of the enemy, but have faith in Jehovah's word of promise. And that's summed up in the words of chapter 7 and verse 9 in Isaiah, if you will not believe, Surely you shall not be established. Chapter 16 is about a king who wasn't established because he didn't stand firm upon God's promises. We have in these first nine verses a drastic departure from the covenant and a dangerous alliance outside the covenant. In the first place, we see a drastic departure from the covenant in verses 1 through 4. The assessment of Ahaz in verses 1 and 2 contrasts him with David and therefore shows him deliberately cutting himself off from the covenant promises. Ahaz's predecessors, as we've all already noticed, hadn't followed David fully, but they were generally Orthodox in their religious policies, doing enough to receive that general commendation that they did right in the sight of Jehovah. But with Ahaz, there's a drastic departure from the pattern of the kings before him. Verse 3. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And that means the sins of Jeroboam are seeping into the southern kingdom of Judah. And the irony that is that Ahaz was following Israel's lead at the very time that the northern kingdom was about to disappear into the oblivion of history. But the writer goes on to say in verse 3 that Ahab's departure from the covenant was much worse. He even made his son pass through the fire. So the perversions of Israel weren't enough for Ahab. He had to practice the horrors of paganism child sacrifices to the demon god Molech or to Baal. In verse 4, Ahaz engaged in extra temple worship. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree, likely involving uh, the fertility rites and uh, the engagement with temple prostitutes uh, that we find cited back in 1 Kings 14 verses 23 and 24. Practices that had originated with the Canaanites who built altars to pagans on every high hill and beneath every luxurious tree. That passage in 1 Kings 14 says, normally, That terminology, the terminology of verse 4, Ahaz's sacrifices on the high places, describes what the people did under a generally righteous king. And the righteous king's fault is that he failed to remove the high places. But here the verbs are singular. Ahaz himself, the royal leader of God's people engages in this worship on the high places. All of these things then were done, verse 3, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. These practices were commonplace among the inhabitants of the land of Canaan before it was occupied by God's people. And it was such a an abomination in God's sight that he had driven out the Canaanites and given the land to his people. And now Ahaz, king of God's covenant people, was sacrificing on the high places, practicing the very same abominations. Deuteronomy 8, verses 19 to 20, clearly says, that repeating the sins of the Canaanites would cause the people to experience the judgment, the very judgment that fell on the Canaanites. Now, we recoil at these abominations, and we're quick to renounce them as perverse and barbaric, and surely they were. But they're being carried on today, in the form of promiscuous sex and the, abomina- uh, the abomination of abortion. It's been my observation that many young people in the church today no longer believe that sex outside of marriage is sinful. And every year, millions upon millions. Of unborn babies are sacrificed to the God called choice. God took note of this outrage when Ahaz was practic- practicing it, and we may be sure that he's doing the same today. A drastic departure from The covenant. Secondly, a dangerous alliance outside the covenant. Verses five to nine. These two kings, Rezin of Aram, Pekah of Israel, came up to war with Judah, and they besieged Ahaz at Jerusalem. But the Hebrew text says literally that they weren't able to fight. They weren't able to fight it out. They weren't able to uh, overcome Ahaz at Jerusalem. They weren't able to conquer uh, Ahaz. There's a consensus among interpreters that Aram and Israel wanted Ahaz to join with them in an anti-Assyrian coalition. But when Ahaz refused, they attacked him in an attempt to overthrow him, and as that text in Isaiah that we read, chapter 7, verses 5 to 6, says they sought to install their, their own king of choice in his place. Taking 2 Chronicles 28, 17, and 18 into account, the situation in Judah is even much worse than it looks here in 2 Kings 16. The Edomites had attacked her from the southeast, uh, the, the Philistines are taking uh, cities and villages from Israel in uh, the south. And there was also bad economic news here in chapter 16, verse 6. Rezin recovered the part of Elath that uh, Azariah had restored to Judah, chapter 14, verse 22, Second 2 Kings. He cleared out the uh, Judeans living there, and it was resettled by either Aramaeans or, according to ancient Hebrew texts, Uh, To uh, resettled by uh, Edomites. Elath was uh, a strategic uh, place. It was on the Red Sea at the center of uh, important land and sea routes and its loss to Aram was a severe blow to Judah both uh, politically and economically. So Judah is in a bad way when we meet Ahaz here and his predicament in Second Kings chapter 16. So Ahaz is, is, is in deep trouble and he, appear, he appeals to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, verse 7. He reacts not as a covenant king, but as a shrewd politician. Ultimately, Ahaz is putting himself outside the covenant in this dangerous alliance with the king of Assyria. We note in verse 3 that he's contrasted with David, and now that contrast becomes quite sharp. Ahaz, servant of King Jehovah, says to Assyria's king, I am your servant. Ahaz, Jehovah's son, says to Assyria's king, I am your son. The Hebrew word here is son, not vassal as the New International Version has it. Son deliberately recalls Jehovah's word to David in 2 Samuel 7.14 in the context of the Davidic covenant that the Davidic king would be Jehovah's son. Judah's king looks to Assyria's king, not King Jehovah, to save him. Verse 7, come up and save me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. Judah's king trusts in a king rather than in his covenant king. In spite of Jehovah's warning in Isaiah 7:13 of his prophecy that to do so is to try Jehovah's patience. And to bring significant trials upon Judah in the future through the king of Assyria. So not only is Ahaz putting himself outside of the covenant, he's inviting the fox into the hen house. And only the future will reveal just how disastrous it was for Ahaz to step outside of the covenant and put his trust not in King Jehovah, but in the king of Assyria. As usual in politics, a handsome bribe is attached. A handsome bribe buys his salvation. Ahab's lack of faith is demonstrated by, as our English versions translated, a present or A gift, verse 18. Any way you translate it, uh, in the end, it was a bribe. A bribe that includes silver and gold from the house of the Lord, no less. After all, if Ahaz is repudiating his loyalty to Jehovah, what do a few trinkets from the temple of a god Matter that he doesn't believe in anymore. And it worked, at least for the time being. The king of Assyria listened to him, verse 9 says. Tiglath Pileser captures Damascus, kills its king, and deports its inhabitants. It may have been blatant unbelief, but it was successful policy. He may have repudiated the Davidic covenant but it saves his own skin. Ahaz walks in the way of human ingenuity. This kind of thinking says to itself, my troubles are too complex for me to lean on Jehovah's assurances, but I see a clear and obvious way to solve this problem. Jehovah seems such a remote and ineffective help. It's the kind of pragmatism that the English author H.G. Wells spoke about in a letter to his friend Rebecca West. I can't, he writes, in my present state anyhow, bank on religion. When one calls on him, in the silence of the night, he doesn't turn over and say, what's the trouble, my dear? Both Ahaz and H.G. Wells longed respectively for more tangible help than heaven's help. The clear choice is between pragmatism, or promise. Ahaz had been given that promise of deliverance through Isaiah's prophetic ministry. We read that in verses 3 through 9 of Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 7. The question is this. Do I go with what I'm sure will work or do i wait for what god offers do i latch on to an immediate solution seems to make sense or do i submit to what god requires of me and wait on the lord there are thousands of ways that we can become ahaz's disciples we simply say of any situation in our lives, My wisdom must handle this. Rather than, My Father has promised to give me good gifts, and that's a promise that will never fail. Jehovah spoke the promise of. Salvation to King Ahaz by the mouth of Isaiah, and his promise could not have been clearer. Take care, be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on the account of the fierce anger of Rezin of Aram and Pekah of Israel who have planned evil against you. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Nor could the warning have been any clearer. If you will not believe, you surely shall not be established. But we didn't read any further into Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7. If we had in that 7th chapter, uh, we would have... A scene that the promise to Ahaz was also secured by a sign. The Lord told Ahaz to ask for a sign, and Ahaz said, I'm not going to ask for a sign, thereby testing the Lord. And the Lord said, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Jehovah says uh, to Ahaz, not only do I promise you that this evil scheme against you will not come to pass, it will fail to materialize, but here's a token To assure you of it, a son born to a virgin, whom she will name Emmanuel, God with us. A name that conveys God's promise to save and bless and protect his people. According to Matthew chapter 1 verses 22 to 23, The virgin of Isaiah's prophecy is Mary and the child is Jesus Christ. Jehovah's anointed the Messiah is the guarantee of this promise to King Ahaz. He couldn't have been given a greater guarantee. It's Useful for us to understand that the, the original audience of 2 Kings was uh, the remnant of Judah in captivity in Babylon. You can imagine them reading uh, this account in 2 Kings 16. You can imagine them remembering that prophecy to Isaiah and the clear promises given to Ahaz uh, in that prophecy. And it's significant in Isaiah's prophecy that the Lord instructed Isaiah to go uh, and meet Ahaz, and when he did, that he was to take his son, whose name was Shear Yashub, with him. Isaiah 7.3. His son's name means a remnant shall return. So the remnant in Israel is hearing uh, that Isaiah had the faith to name his son. In the midst of Israel's turmoil, in the midst of Judah's turmoil, he had the faith to name his son the remnant shall return. Remnant theology is prominent in Isaiah's prophecy. It's a fascinating and encouraging study uh, to read through it and trace its uh, remnant theology. And the question to the remnant in captivity is whether they would believe the promise that was secured through the promised coming Of their Messiah. Whether they would trust in this promise of Emmanuel. God with us. The God who saves. The God who will protect his people. The God who will deliver uh, his people. And that's also uh, the question that faced the wider readership of kings. And therefore uh, the question that faces us today. Is where is our trust? Our text asks us, our text begs us to ponder and answer that question. Will you trust in human ingenuity? Will you resort to pragmatism? Or will you trust in Jehovah's promises secured by the presence of of Emmanuel, God with us? Will you trust in Jesus, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us and who, having arisen from the dead and and having ascended to His heavenly throne, sent the Spirit of Christ to dwell in us, fulfilling Emmanuel's prophecy? Dear Christians, we need the grace of our God to believe these promises, to trust in these promises, to look to the Christ, the Messiah of these promises in order that we might be walking in a a way that's pleasing uh, to our God. May God give us that grace. Amen. Amen. Do, O oh Lord, grant us that grace. How many times have we been guilty of this, O oh Lord, before you? How many of times have we uh, simply plotted straight ahead uh, into disaster because we have trusted in human wisdom, human ingenuity, pragmatism, first thing that comes to mind instead of looking to your promises and trusting in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, O God, when we have so failed to latch on to your promises. Enable us, O God, by the grace that you give to your dear, uh, dearly beloved people. Grant us, O God, grace so that in the decisions of life, in the hard things that we must deal with in this life. We would be those who trust in you, trust in King Jehovah, and not make pragmatism or human ingenuity our king. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.